You're listening to a CNA podcast. Hey there, welcome back to Work It. As you can tell, I am not Adrian or Crispina. My name is Grace Yo. I'm a journalist with CNA and I'm your host for this special series called Wired Differently, where I discuss neurodiversity in the workplace. Neurodiversity is a big word, but it has a simple meaning. Neuro means brain, diversity means different. I think put those two together and you get the idea that we think, learn, behave in different ways. And I say we because slightly less than two years ago, I learned that I have ADHD or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. The feeling I had when I found out? Sheer relief. That label explained everything, why I was the way I am, and including some pretty persistent struggles I had at work, like how I struggle to write news in a linear fashion. So I'm kicking off this series with another person who is also neurodivergent, and like me, told his colleagues and his bosses. Wesley Lowe is autistic. Wesley, I will say it wasn't easy trying to find someone who was willing to talk candidly about being autistic in the workplace. And I think it was partly because of the stigma attached to autism. So thank you so much for agreeing to speak about your autism today. Hello, I'm Wesley. I graduated from Nanyang Technological University, NTU, with a bachelor degree in accountancy five years ago. Today, I'm a working adult and I'm an autistic advocate in Singapore. If you Google my name, Wesley Lowe, you will find articles on my story and my autism advocacy work online. I have done that. I have Googled you. But for the benefit of our listeners, tell me what it is that you do. Well, by profession, I work as a tax associate, as in TAX, in a commercial firm. Being in the junior position, my job scope also includes administrative duties for my department. I've been in this job for about Four years plus, coming to five years soon. That's pretty long, speaking as someone with ADHD. (laughs) I want to know why this job appeals to you. Well, like they say, nothing is certain in life except death and taxes. (laughs) I thought of that. Well, just kidding. I mean, that's not the real reason, of course. Well, in tax, the statutory deadlines are fixed every year. Like, for example, Singapore companies have to e-file their corporate tax returns with the IRAS, that is the Singapore Tax Authorities, by... 30th November and the tax peak periods are more or less quite predictable in that sense you can like you know mentally prepare yourself for it without being caught by surprise Mm. and we can plan the work in advance Mm. to to make sure that it's all done on time so this kind of predictability and stability is what autistics thrive on Mm. and tax also follows a set of tax laws so that provides some structure Mm. and autistics thrive on structured environments as well yeah I think that's That's actually very smart to find a job that caters to your strengths. Well, so as many autistic advocates say, they always say autistics come with unique strengths and that they can offer things that not everybody can offer, see things in a different light. To share an example, there were times in my company we had to do user acceptance testing, UAT, for new systems that we use for our work. And there was this autistic online who said that autistics catch what others miss and miss what others catch. That's interesting. Okay. Do you you agree with that? Yeah. And I feel that this is where my autistic strength, eye for detail, comes in handy. Mm. I still remember when I did UAT, I could spot nitty details of the errors in the system workflows. Mm. Some of it may be very minute, but yet they are significant. And it was imperative to have those errors fixed in order for the system to run properly. And recently for one of the UAT exercises in my company, my colleagues from another department who were the ones in charge of that project also were very grateful to me to say that I, I was really very thorough as a UAT participant. And one of them even said, oh, lucky we got Wesley as one of our UAT participants. Can really spot a lot of things. 
Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you really embraced your autism, especially, you know, its strengths and all that. But let's backtrack a little bit to your diagnosis story. Well, I was diagnosed with Asperger syndrome at 18. So Asperger syndrome is one of the diagnoses that are under the umbrella of the autism spectrum. But it was only in 2012 where there were some changes in the regulations in the psychiatric field. So they took certain diagnoses out and they just call it autism spectrum. But I was diagnosed before that change. The autistic I met in the first few years of coming to the autism community were all diagnosed at a young age. Mm -hmm. So I used to feel like, you know, I'm the odd one out. Until I started listening to several international autistic speakers, such as at international autism forums, whether online or face-to-face. And I realized that a number of them were diagnosed late too. Some even later than me. And only recently I met one or two Singaporean autistics with late diagnosis. So that was when I finally felt, okay, finally I don't feel alone anymore. (laughs) So winding the clock back to my younger days, I went through a lot of bullying in school from primary school all the way to junior college. I was always an outcast. I asked a lot of questions in class because instructions that were clear to other students were not clear to me. Mm. Either that or I was often unsure whether I caught and understood the initial instructions carefully that I felt the need to clarify. Mm. So there was a lot of element of self-doubt in in me often Mm. and the fear of making mistakes. Yeah, or the fear of getting the wrong instruction. Yeah. And classmates actually took advantage of that by bringing me with bluff answers or getting me to do things for them, mm. like lending them my stationery in exchange for having my questions answered. <laughs> what about outside of school? Outside of school, I was actually ostracized by others as well, including even my cousins. Because back then, we were all in primary school. Mm. Right? And they were probably too young at that stage to have a maturity of thought to say that we should accept a cousin who is different because he's part of our family. I was often saying and doing things that were deemed socially inappropriate as well or socially stupid, but I could not understand why the things I said or did were socially inappropriate or quote-unquote stupid in a neurotypical world. I didn't understand these social rules and nuances that came so naturally to neurotypical people. And then in junior college, year one, at 17 years old, I started seeing the school counsellor in my JC to talk about all these social problems that I had. And I was really so bothered and troubled by it by then because after so many years in school, how is it that I still don't have friends? Mm-hmm. I still don't know how to relate socially. I still don't know how to make friends. And so after several sessions, I actually asked her this problem. Mm. Could it be a medical condition? Okay. Now, just a bit of disclaimer here. Now as an autistic adult, when I educate people about autism, as a 30-year-old autistic adult, I always tell them that autism is not a medical condition, but a neurological difference. Mm. But remember, my 17-year-old self then did not have all this understanding of autism. And in fact, it didn't even occur to me that I may have autism. Mm. So I just asked my counsellor whether there's a medical condition because I don't know what other label to put on it. And then my counsellor said, well, there's something called Asperger's Syndrome. So I read up about it and the more I read, the more it sounded like it was describing me. That diagnosis brought a very huge relief. It lifted the heavy burden of wondering why I was the way I was. And I could finally start a journey of understanding myself and a journey of self-acceptance. And it took several years before I accepted and embraced my autism. And that finally put an end to running around in circles, trying to quote-unquote be normal. Mm. Trying to meet basically neurotypical standards. Or trying to so-called fix myself. That's right. I think fix is the right word. So for listeners who may not be familiar with the term neurotypical, neurotypical basically just means 
the conventional or the normal ways of thinking, behaving, or processing the world as majority of society tend to do. Would you say that's accurate, more or the, less? The keyword is majority, yes. Yes. Okay. But yeah, very relatable, your diagnosis story, but also, I guess, the feelings that you had after you received that diagnosis or that label. But that was, you know, when you were 18, more than a decade ago. <laughs> Back then, at 18, did it ever occur to you that you might one day need to tell people about your autism once you entered the workforce? When I first received my diagnosis at the age of 18, I initially did not think so far as to whether 10 years down the road, would I have to one day tell people about my Asperger's syndrome at the workplace? Because at that point, I was already too overwhelmed by the challenges that were happening at that time. From deciding who to tell and who not to tell, to the anxiety of whether my diagnosis could get me a suitable vocation for national service. So there was an uncertainty of how that would turn out. And also trying to learn more about Asperger's syndrome so that I can understand myself and how it affects my life. Mm. And it was also my GCE A-level that year. So imagine all the stresses that were coming. And over and above that period, my physical health was also not at its optimum level. Mm. So I was just facing so many things at the time. So back then, I didn't disclose my autism or Asperger's to many people as there were some fear of negative repercussions at that point in time. And also, back then, my parents, they themselves, their understanding of Asperger's and autism was very little. Maybe they had a certain negative view on it, or maybe they were also worried about negative repercussions. And I had a hard time persuading them to actually, you know, allow me to reveal it to a small circle of friends. I mean, I had to in order to get by life, right? Mm. Can't just tell no one. And it was over the years that I gradually became more and more open and telling more people that I'm autistic. And it was only four to five years ago that I actually became public about it, like appearing on the internet and things like that. Mm. So it was a, a gradual journey. Maybe you needed to go through that actually in order to accept the diagnosis or accept your autism first before you were ready to tell other people about it. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, yes, of course it took a while to come to have for self-acceptance. Self-acceptance will usually take a while when you first get diagnosed and... Perhaps what was going on subconsciously in my mind was maybe not so much that I cannot accept that the label is there or the diagnosis is there. Because after all, that diagnosis, like I said earlier, brought a lot of relief because at least I can explain why the way I am. But I guess it was the difficulty of accepting the fact that life is going to be this challenging for me, mm. right? And accepting the fact that I was born this way. Like, say when I face challenges of living in this neurotypical world, and then those will be the times where I start thinking, oh... You see, because I have Asperger's, I'm facing this struggle. Mm. If I don't have Asperger's, maybe I won't be facing this struggle. What if I was born normal mm. instead or born uh, neurotypical? You know, yep. that kind of thing. Yep. So, but now that I look back, I believe what I was really frustrated about was not so much about being autistic per se or having Asperger's per se, but it was about the challenges that came with it. Mm. And the challenges that came with it, living in a world that is not built for me. You, you know what I mean? And the challenges that I have in relating to people. Yeah, actually, yeah. As you're saying that, I completely resonate with that. So the ADHD label wasn't something that I ever struggled with accepting, but it's struggling with knowing that the struggles I've had all along are due to ADHD and I will continue having them for the rest of my life. Yeah, it's about continuing having the struggles. You said it right. Now as you're saying it, I realise, okay, maybe I am not as self-accepting as I thought I was. <laughs> but yes, part of self-acceptance is coming out to your colleagues and your bosses and all that. You had already appeared in the media by then, mm -hmm. but for your colleagues and bosses who may not have seen or known about your public advocacy, why did you eventually tell them that you're autistic? Okay, I will say a slight correction because when I first started working, if my memory is, serves me well, I actually had not really appeared in the media yet. Mm. Yeah, so I was I was pretty open about my autism by then. Yeah. 
I was really in the autistic community. I talked about my autism openly with people around me. But that said, my colleagues already knew I was autistic from day one mm. because it was SG enabled an agency that serves persons with disabilities connected me with this employer and I was actually being supported and I still am being supported by autism job coach from an autism organization in Singapore that provides uh, employment support services to autistics. Mm. So it was actually made known right from the start already. So it was in that sense not a difficult decision because mm -hmm. I was at a stage of life already where one, I'm open to telling people about my autism and mm. two, I believe it was a necessity to tell colleagues about my autism to minimize misunderstandings and hopefully get support that I need. Mm. When I first got diagnosed, I read a book, Pretending to be Normal, Living with Asperger's Syndrome, by author Lian Holiday Willie. I actually learned this concept of discerning between, in her words, the people who may have to know mm -hmm. about your autism and the people who may not need to know. Hmm. The former group could include, let's say, colleagues you work closely with, and other groups could be your teachers if you're in school, so you can get the support you need, your counsellors, your mentors, your doctors, because these are people who care for your welfare, so they need to understand your needs. While the latter group, people who may not need to know, will probably include those that you run into your neighbourhood only very occasionally, or virtual strangers that you interact with only when you need their help or their service. You don't really have a relationship with them in that sense. Because of what I learned from that book, I had actually come to recognise that colleagues are people who I may have to disclose to, and I had no qualms or reservations about revealing that. Mm. How did your bosses and colleagues respond then? In Singapore, due to lack of sufficient autism awareness, and because of people's misconceptions of autism, where they have a mental picture of how they expect autism to present itself. From time to time, I get responses like, oh, you don't look autistic. I cannot tell you're autistic. These are responses that I get both at work and outside of work. So it's not unique to the workplace. Actually, yeah, I, I can relate to that because when I found out that I had ADHD, those comments were not said by other people, but I think it was my own self-stigma. It was almost like a, I was gaslighting myself essentially into thinking, oh, maybe I really don't because everyone else thinks that I don't have it. But I knew immediately that I had to tell my bosses or that I wanted to tell them. I only got my diagnosis seven months into being a news reporter. I wanted to tell my bosses because one of my biggest weaknesses is essentially <laughs> consistency, specifically maintaining consistent interest in something. And I think it's very obvious when it happens. It can lead to also like lack of productivity, stuff like that. So therefore, having that explanation for that behaviour or having that label of ADHD as an explanation, not as an excuse. It was a way for me to help them help me. And I think that was very crucial. And I saw many benefits in being open and honest and telling them about my ADHD. And I want to know if you also saw any benefits from disclosing your autism at work. Yes, I did. Mm. And I think it's important for colleagues to know that a person is autistic because if you don't tell anyone, there are bound to be misunderstandings, right? Like, for example, someone with ADHD told me this where he said that he didn't want to tell his own colleagues that he had ADHD and mm. and as a, as a result of that, nobody could understand why he was, let's say, always late for meetings. So yeah. you see, these are the kind of misunderstandings that will occur if you don't reveal. But that said, of course, we are also bound to meet people both at work and outside of work who will just accept it as a matter of fact. Like, okay, you tell me you're autistic or you have ADHD, okay. But I'm not going to inconvenience myself to accommodate you. I think also a lot of them don't know what to do with that disclosure. So maybe just sharing that label alone is not enough. You need to share how it will affect the work or the relationship, the struggles that you may have at, at work, which I think is a lot to expect for someone who is not ready to disclose regarding your example on your friend who has ADHD. 
if you're not even prepared to disclose, of course, it'll be difficult to even talk about what your needs are, right? right? <laughs> yes. But, but even for those of us who are ready to disclose, the reality is that not every single person will actually bother to accommodate or be willing to accommodate. Yeah. yeah. Which is why our Singapore policymakers need to implement a law in the upcoming Workplace Fairness Act that employers are required to make reasonable accommodations for persons with disabilities, which includes autistics. Mm. I think there are many layers to that. I think people with autism or ADHD, some might not be ready or willing to acknowledge that it's a disability simply because of the negative stigma around the term disability. So they see it as a dirty word or just something that's negative. I don't agree with that. I think it's a neutral term. It's just saying the sky is blue. Autism is a disability. ADHD is a disability. Because in the neurotypical society, it is a disability. I don't disagree with that. It's not all sunshine and roses. Even though we're both neurodivergent, I would never claim to understand completely how you feel. But I know there are certain traits and tendencies that, you know, as like you said, could be easily misunderstood or rub people the wrong way. How do you think these show up at work for you personally? Well, from time to time, I may ask questions that others don't normally ask or ask more questions than what others ask due to the fact that my brain is wired differently. Because remember, autism is a neurological difference. And so I process information differently. So I may sometimes need to ask or clarify on work instructions for it to be clear and explicit enough for my autistic brain to be able to make sense of it. Because what makes sense to a non-autistic may not make sense to an autistic like me. And also because my brain is very literal, so I may unconsciously nitpick on people's choice of words instead of catching the main point. Like somewhat I'm missing the forest for the tree and sometimes people do get frustrated at me by that where they say, oh, don't be so picky on the words or they'll say things like, don't split hairs with me. And then when I heard that, I'm like, oh dear, I didn't even know that what I said came across that way. And I also tend to talk loudly without knowing it. So autistic sensory sensitivities to various stimuli, Mm. in this context, we talk about sound, can either be hypersensitive or hyposensitive. I'm quite sure that I'm hyposensitive to sound. For example, if a place is getting crowded, I cannot sense an increasing level of noise. Mm. And more evidently from the fact that I'm unaware that I'm speaking loudly. So in other words, my brain thinks that I'm speaking at a normal volume, but in reality, I'm actually speaking loud and I don't know. Mm. And this can be a disturbance to colleagues around. Mm. One of the solutions to this is to have other loud people around the office so that the attention is spread away from you. Yeah. And also you bring up the average decibel. Yeah, correct, yeah. correct. Mm-hmm. Any other tendencies? Definitely. So people have also feedback that I tend to be aggressive or that in conversations or in meetings, I want to have the last word. And some may even label me as stubborn. But very often, I'm not even aware that I come across that way and it's unintentional. Mm. And I also did read somewhere that autistics can be very fixated or feel very strongly about our point of view Mm. and once we feel very strongly about something it's very hard to waver our opinion and maybe it is from that aspect of me that the aggressiveness is unknowingly being manifested or when let's say I appear to be very persistent on my point of view which is something that I have seen in other autistics as well perhaps it could be partly also a subconscious defense mechanism after going through so much bullying in my life Mm. so maybe there's a bit of defense mechanism to be aggressive self-preservation self-protection yeah 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 I think you're pretty (laughs) self-aware so (laughs) kudos to you for getting there Hello, my name is Steve Lai. And I'm Teresa Tang. And we are the hosts of CNA Correspondent. A podcast that takes you to the heart of the work our correspondents do across the globe. 
from China's COVID response to the child care center massacre in Thailand. And from the fall of Najib Razak to the rise of Anwar Ibrahim as Malaysia's prime minister. We speak to the people at the reporting front lines. So if you want to know how the biggest global stories unfold, make sure you follow or subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. How have you learned to, I don't know if cope or manage are the right words or terms for this, but how have you learned to live with these traits and tendencies that may rub people the wrong way? Well, I'm actually glad you asked the question in the right way because you said how to cope or manage the traits, right? Yeah. Because there are people who are asked this question in a different way. There are people who are asked me, how did you overcome autism? And when I hear that, you know what I tell them? I say, I do not overcome autism. <laughs> Brain transplant. I grow into it and I embrace it. Mm. But your question, you say how you manage the traits, right? Mm. You, don't, you don't even say manage autism. So mm. I, I'm glad you ask it that way. Well, I don't always cope. Sometimes I'm unaware of how my behaviours come across to other people. Mm-hmm. And if no one tells me, then... Perhaps ignorance is bliss. La, you know? <laughs> uh, so in scenarios where people tell me, or I somehow notice it myself, I will explain my intentions to people, for example, telling them that, oh, it was virtually not my intention to be aggressive, and explain to them how, as an autistic, how I perceive the situation. Sometimes people try to understand my point of view, mm-hmm. but yet it's also not uncommon to have situations where even after I explain, we still do not see eye to eye. Or some people insist that I have to change my way of behaving. And unfortunately, because we are neurodivergence, as a result, we are a minority, mm. our behaviours are considered out of the norm from neurotypical perspective, not yep. from my perspective. <laughs> yep. And their way of being and behaving is considered norm, again, from their perspective. And more acceptable, again, from their perspective, we are often the ones bearing the burden of explaining ourselves, sometimes repeatedly because people forget, mm-hmm. and resolving misunderstandings, which can be very exhausting on some days. I think you identify with that as an ADHD person, right? Yes, I mean, the fact that you said sometimes you have to over-explain yourself, <laughs> the fact that you mentioned again from their perspective three times in the same sentence kind of points to that. <laughs> and if I need instructions to be clearer or more detailed, then one of the ways I cope is that I be not afraid to ask. Mm. I may encounter some who still maintain their own style of communication without adjusting to me. And in such cases, unfortunately, the only way to get by is to put in more effort to learn their style of communication and infer what they are saying, if they're not explicit enough. Mm. Or just ask them some more. (laughs) So for our listeners who actually may never have worked or managed someone who is autistic, or at least not that they know of, Based on your interactions in the workplace or your own experience, what are some immediately helpful things that they can do to make things easier for their autistic employee or colleague? Well, there's really a number of things they can do. And some of the things that I'm about to describe now, you will realise that actually they are not as difficult as how people perceive it. Because people tend to perceive that, oh, it's going to be very difficult, it's very daunting, right? I think also people feel like it needs to be a huge policy change as opposed to, say, just being more empathetic. Asking you how you would like to do certain things, how you don't want to do certain things, as compared to like a huge like system level kind of change, which I think that's what people assume needs to happen in order for accommodations to take place. Well, actually, systemic changes are needed as well, but that's a discussion for another time. Mm. So a number of things people can do. One, remember that autistics are wired differently and communicate differently from you as a neurotypical. So this can translate into a few adjustments to communications, such as communicating instructions with greater clarity and explicitness, clarifying what an autistic man instead of assuming what he meant and taking offence. Because remember that if the same thing is said by an autistic 
and by a non-autistic, they can actually mean very different things. Mm. Simply because autistics often do not have hidden meaning behind their words. Autistics' words are often not out of ill intent or out of intentions to offend, but often because they just do not know that such a statement they say is offending in a neurotypical world. Mm. And often autistics are just being honest and candid. Yeah, I, that's why I say I find the world very confusing. Mm. The neurotypical world. Mm. What else? What other and suggestions? Second, be patient if an autistic asks for more questions than you otherwise might expect. Three, be explicit rather than implicit. And avoid idioms and sarcasm because autistics may not catch it. Mm -hmm. So don't say raining cats and dogs. Just say it is raining heavily. <laughs> or you know, in national service, one of the sarcastic things that commanders like to say, take your time, take your time, right? Yeah. But see what they mean, they obviously mean the opposite. <laughs> yeah, so these are the kind of things that will confuse autistics. And invite the autistic for lunches mm. so that he feels welcome and not excluded. However, that said, if he declines, don't force him. Mm. Try inviting him again on another day. Don't give up because he may need time to warm up to you. Unless, of course, he specifically tells you, I want to be alone all the time, mm. henceforth. Right, but otherwise, don't give up. Like in my case, people don't really invite me for lunch and I actually feel sad about it. Mm. So there are quite many days that I feel quite lonely. Do you ask if you can go for lunch with some colleagues instead? I have tried before, but it's tiring to ask all the time. So yeah. I only ask once in a long while, you know. Mm. Otherwise, I just try to find other things to occupy my lunch with. Mm. And for autistic with sensory challenges, make physical adjustments. So for example, those who are hypersensitive to sound, you can assign them a quieter station. If they're hypersensitive to lights, you can dim the lights at the workstation. And fundamentally, at the end, it's about respect. Mm. If we learn to see autistics as equal members of society who are equally deserving of respect and equally deserving of dignity, mm. then I think doing all these things will become second nature rather than being seen as a big act of magnanimity. But I think you are just being a kind human being. That's <laughs> nothing spectacular. Do you ever find that because you look a certain way or you behave a certain way, which, as you mentioned previously, may not fit into many people's idea of what autism looks like, do you ever think that makes it harder for you to ask for the support that you may need due to your autism? Well, many people have said that I don't look autistic. Mm. Yeah, And maybe subconsciously, because of that, they expect me to be like neurotypical or so they underestimate the level or the intensity of the support that I need. People yeah. have also said you are high-functioning. Mm -hmm. Let me take a pause here and just explain why high-functioning is an outdated term. Yeah, I hate it too, right? but yes, please it's explain. <laughs> when, when the term was still being used, people tend to associate those who are high-functioning with people who have high IQ. And so because you are high-functioning, people expect that you will be able to get through life without much help mm -hmm. or without much struggles. But we just found out that that could not be further from the truth. Mm. Because they realize that people with high IQ, autistics with high IQ, they also had difficulties with their daily life. And these people were being denied the services they need because people assumed they didn't need them. Mm. While those who were labeled as low functioning, people felt that they need a lot of help, yes, and maybe they do, but their strengths were being ignored. With the different autistic traits that people have, whether is it from communication to you know social understanding, Everyone exhibits different traits to different degrees. So how exactly do you define what is high-functioning or what is low-functioning? And with that, they say that the more useful term to use is support needs. So mm. you have low support needs, medium support needs, high support needs. I read this meme actually that mm. says, high-functioning basically means that you are less of an inconvenience to others. So they place that functioning label on you based on how a neurotypical experiences your traits. Yeah, and that 
it's precisely a problem, right? Why is an autistic measured by how much they can be like a neurotypical or autistic's intrinsic self-worth, right? It's like measuring a woman's self-worth by how much she can be like a man. Mm. When fundamentally she's a woman. Oh, I love yeah. that analogy. So when people tell me that, you know, you're high-functioning and then when I get a little upset and people tell me, but it's a compliment, then I say, no, it is not. That makes it worse yeah. when they say that. <laughs> so back to the question on... Mm whether it makes it harder for me to ask for the support I need. Well, in the workplace, I have had people who said, we don't see you differently. We see you as same as everyone else. I have very mixed feelings about it because actually, it's not that I don't want them to see me differently. I want them to see me different, but not less. I want them to see and recognize that and acknowledge that I am different and to be able to celebrate and embrace that difference. Yeah. And the benefits that comes with it, the benefits that I bring to a table as a person who is different, rather than saying that, oh, we don't see you differently. I understand what you mean. When they say that they don't see you differently, in other words, they don't see you at all. Because the fact is that you are different. And the, I think the thing is that they feel like difference is a negative thing. Whereas for us, it's just a neutral thing. Yeah. We're just different. It's like red and blue are different colours. Mm. Neither is better than the other. It's just different. Mm. Yeah. Oh, but it's important to clarify that when you tell people that Please see me as different, but you mm. must always add, but not less. Emphasize the fact that your difference actually brings also strengths and not just weaknesses. Mm. And, and it actually can bring diversity and life yeah. to the team. Yes. If we don't emphasize that to people, then people will just see different as a negative thing. Mm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think that's also why many people choose not to openly talk about the neurodivergence, especially if they've been coping successfully so far. Like, why disclose that you have autism, that you have ADHD, etc.? Nonetheless, I think it is very admirable what you're doing, advocating for uh, autism, coming on this podcast to educate us, including me. Uh, I I think it does have a ripple effect for people who are listening and who are paying attention. And also when people see or hear others being honest with themselves, it kind of encourages them to be honest with themselves. At the same time, I am on the fence about whether you would have to disclose your autism or ADHD in order to be true to yourself. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Well, it was only just very recently that an autistic who is middle-aged and in a high-ranking position in his company was telling me that he feels like he's constantly masking at work Mm. while he can be himself at home. And so his colleagues and his wife see different sides of him. Mm. So to some extent, when one masks, he may feel like he's not being himself but yes, sometimes masking or suppressing some of our neurodivergent traits, sadly, are needed for survival in a neurotypical dominated world where neurotypical rules and neurotypical way of existing mm. prevails just because they are the majority. Or when I face situations where a direct consequences of some of my autistic tendencies is that I clash with neurotypicals. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And it's something that I can't really avoid, right? Even if you can find environments where neurotypicals genuinely try to be kind to you, which to find such environments are already very difficult to find. It's very hard to reduce the clashes to zero clashes. Yeah, agree, agree. But let's say an autistic individual does listen to this podcast and they do decide, okay, I'm ready to tell my colleagues, my bosses about my autism. For whatever reason, whether it's to harness their strengths or to minimize the projects they're given that will bring out their weaknesses, how would you advise them to go about this? Well, like I talked about earlier, right? segregate between the people who need to know and the people who don't. Mm. But if you're someone like me, I'll probably just tell everybody. 
because I post on even on my company intranet about my autism and my advocacy and some people have said wow I'm, I admire that you are so brave to talk about it. So back to the question once you have done that segregation perhaps the next step will be telling people your needs and how they can accommodate you. Mm. It is important to also explain to people one why the accommodations are needed and why mm. it's important for you. Mm. right? But the second part that is equally important is that you need to explain the importance of having accommodations in the sense that you need to explain to people that look these accommodations can enable me as an autistic mm. to perform my job. And that is one of the core tenets of accommodations when we talk about accommodations for persons with disabilities, right? I think that's a very important point to make so that you help people realize that, look, by accommodating me, you are not just doing me a favor. You are enabling me to perform the job that I need to perform and you are enabling me to contribute to the business right, or to the organization. But it's also important to emphasize the strengths, right? Like let's say, for example, I have eye for detail, I'm meticulous, and you mentioned that some of these strengths are actually because you have autism. Yes. Not in spite of the fact that you have autism. Yep. So that people see, yeah, it is useful and beneficial to have this person on the team. Yep. And in fact, research did show that people who are more diverse in their hiring, like having more PWD, person with disabilities on their team, and all that, they, the team become more cohesive and things like that. So yeah, neurodiversity is healthy and productive uh, <laughs> and a competitive advantage. It disrupts groupthink, which is always a good thing. And yeah, I, I feel it would because of the creativity or the lack of group thing in the company, help to retain employees as well, for sure. <laughs> and it's like playing a song, right? It's like, you know, the song has different notes and different tunes and mm. even the notes that appear less, it makes the whole song go nicely, right? Yeah. As opposed to if you sing a song with just one tune and all the way through just one note on the from start to end, so boring, right? <laughs> I think it's very refreshing that you are so candid and you're so open enough to talk about your autism. We're on the same page in terms of how open we are about our neurological differences and how we advocate for, in yourself, autistic individuals and in myself, ADHD. And I don't think either of us take that for granted, the fact that we have the privilege to speak up about it. So thank you very much for coming on this podcast and for sharing all these very useful insights not just me but our listeners also learned so much about autism and I also learned a lot about how to advocate for myself one day I just hope to reach your level of self-acceptance I think you are far ahead of me <laughs> in that regard I noticed you didn't ask a question that normally when people interview they normally have to ask like they have to ask the interviewee so what are your last words on that kind of thing oh no la. <laughs> no no I hate that sort of question yeah. you, you have last words uh, I have to think but I'm sure I can figure out something on the spot. I'm sure I can. I just, I just need a few minutes to think, but I'm sure within a few minutes I can think of something. <laughs> it's okay. If you're still here listening, thank you for being curious about neurodiversity. This is our first episode of Wired Differently. Leave us a review or comment on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to tell us what you think about this episode. Also, thank you so much to the CNA podcast team, which includes Crispina Robert, Jacqueline Chan, Joanne Chan, Saya Win, and Tiffany Ang for supporting my ADHD. I'm Grace Yo, and here's wishing you a workplace where you get to show up as yourself. <laughs>